Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Let the filibustering begin. Welcome to Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to Filibuster here on the Nerd Party Network. I'm Lee Hutchison, back again. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at forward slash the Nerd Party, at join Nerd Party on Twitter, and at thenerdparty.com. So, joining me today on the pod phone is John Tenuto. John is a sociology professor who studies Star Trek fans and its cultural effect. He and his wife, fellow sociology professor Maria Jose, have written for Star Trek, the official magazine, StarTrek.com, and they have contributed to the recent Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan expanded soundtrack release. John joins me to share his views on Star Trek Discovery's first season so far, and we reflect on the characters, stories, behind-the-scenes talent, and where the second half of the season will go. Thank you so much to John for joining me on this episode and I hope you'll enjoy our chat. I had such a great time listening to John and he's been someone I've admired and respected for a long time and I hope you'll enjoy our talk as much as I enjoyed listening. Now, engage. Thank you very much for for joining me today, John. Um, So just tell us a little bit about your Star Trek background because you're kind of in a quite a unique position i can uh, can consider you a bit of a star trek historian oh well thank you i um yeah well i've been a fan uh you know since i was a a a young young person uh since i was a little kid i uh was introduced to star trek uh really through um the reruns uh in the 1970s and uh then uh really it captured my imagination in the early 70s and i've stayed with it throughout my whole life. Um, I actually majored in sociology in part because I, I enjoyed so, uh, the science fiction social themes of Star Trek. And I think that there, in a way, science fiction and sociology deal with many of the same kinds of issues, particularly Star Trek. And so it seemed like a natural fit. And then I went on and became a sociology professor. And um, my specialization, I work with my wife, who also teaches sociology uh, at the College of Lake County with me. We uh, study uh, the making of Star Trek. Really, our goal is to to celebrate the contributions of the behind-the-scene artists and how they were able to make Star Trek uh, despite uh, the, the limitations they had of time and money and, and um, uh, you know, special effects technology, even censorship and all the kinds of uh, limitations that were on these artists, yet they were able to produce something that's really, you know, a modern worldwide mythology so we're, we always we really admire the behind the scenes people in addition to the actors and so we've been very fortunate uh, during the last uh, 15 years or so uh, we've been able to look at the archives of some of the the really um, 
important contributors to Star Trek and uh, look at photographs. Uh, we collected about 800 photographs from the Wrath of Khan that had never been seen before, uh, thanks to Nicholas Meyer's collection of uh, resources and, and just scripts and, and memos. And we're trying to sort of piece together really what made Star Trek special through the contributions of the artists. And what kind of things have you kind of learned about, like, for example, you're talking about discovering all this trove of information through Nicholas Meyer. What's been one of the big things that we all think we all, especially Star Trek fans, there's nothing that will ever surprise us and shock us. Has there ever been something you thought, oh, my God, I, this changes everything? Well, we were really fortunate. Um, uh, CBS uh, was and Paramount were uh, very kind to allow us permissions to photocopy certain things that... Uh, some of the library collections were skittish to allow researchers to photocopy, um, and uh, we needed. We really felt we needed to photocopy them because we needed to live with them and look at them for a long time, not just at the library, you know, which anybody can kind of go in and look at these things. But we really wanted to sort of be able to look at them and put put sheets of paper next to each other. So one of the things that we we found that we were really excited to find out about you know we we admire ricardo montalban we love him as just as a person every year i read his autobiography from 1980 i assign it to my students uh to read Uh, he's just a remarkable person and activist and 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 human being and, and talent and and we miss him very much and so we've always sort of had a special fascination for wrath of khan and and space seed and so um we were very curious about why Ricardo Montalban would have been cast in that role, not because of a question of his talent or anything, but when you really look at the early documents uh, of the this will you know uh, Carrie Wilbur's initial uh, pitch and then his initial screenplay and Gene Kuhn's screenplay and Gene Roddenberry eventually is the one who really makes it all work in an un um, an uncredited uh, rewrite that he did and and all the permutations of who Khan was you know beginning with um, you know, the original conception of the character is more like a Viking, blonde-haired Viking, and his name was Ragnar Thorwald at one point, and, uh, you know, it was it was, it was was John Harrison and John Erickson and Harold Erickson, and there were all these different names, and, but in no permutation was the character, um, you know, sort of ethnically or, 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 you know, culturally con, and we started to piece together this paperwork and what we discovered uh, through both the documents and also interviewing people like Joe D'Augusta, who was the casting director, was that Roddenberry was always willing to change character backgrounds to fit an actor. He believed in actors being hired on merit and then that would, you would wind up with a diversity of, 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 of you know, representation that way. So a role might have been written for a man, but if a woman was really right for it as an actor, then the character could be rewritten. And that's exactly what happened with Khan. Khan became Khan to fit at least closer to uh, Ricardo Montalban's physicality and his background. Obviously, he's not Middle Eastern, but uh, this is the 60s. So um, they, they went with a very different sort of ethnicity for the character. So we were really happy to find that out and, and, and to find out how Ricardo Montalban's casting altered that role. And I'm curious as well, like you talk about like introducing sort of Star Trek to your students through books and kind of some of the archive footage. What, what is the reaction of your average student these days when people mention Star Trek? What, what, how, how do they meet that sort of uh, material? Well, you know, I think uh, the J.J. Abrams films really helped to uh, put Star Trek 
into the consciousness of younger people. So, um, you know, uh, there was a period of time there, um, um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where if you mentioned Star Trek in class, you you didn't get the kind of recognition factor that you did 10 years before, like when I first started teaching. And so the J.J. The Abrams films really kind of brought uh, at least the broad strokes of Star Trek back to students. That's always a challenge with students because it's not like when I was a kid or you know, when I was going to school uh, in grammar school or even in college, I mean, there, there weren't as many entertainment choices. So we all kind of spoke the same popular culture language. Now, um, you know, the, the, the culture is so customized that it's difficult to find things that you can use in class as an example and, and kind of all the students get it. So I tend to stick with classic things like Superman. I mean, maybe they, they know the new Superman versus the old, but it doesn't matter because the idea is here's an example to help you understand the sociology. And so I, I tend to stick with things like that. And Star Trek, really because of J.J. Abrams films, it, it wound up with another life among younger people. Um, and now some of my students are actually going back and watching the originals and, and, and getting into Star Trek a little bit because of those films. So that was useful to me as a teacher. Uh, I want to thank J.J. Abrams and, and uh, Justin Lin for, for doing that. Absolutely. And obviously, kind of, we've spoke about the past 15 years. So Star Trek, a lot of people say its natural home is on TV. And now it's finally back on TV in a way, sort of through streaming. So obviously it felt like it's taken years for Star Trek Discovery to get to this point. What was kind of your feelings when Star Trek Discovery was starting to be announced, you know, from people like Brian Fuller and Nicholas Meyer, who we talked about? What was, you, how, what was your feeling sort of through this long process of the show kind of coming together? I know I was excited with some of the names. How was it for you? Oh, it was, I mean, it was, uh, it was delightful. I, I, um, you know, I, I, everything about the announcement, um, you know, even eventually the announcement of the name, I thought the name of the show was a, was a perfect name for Star Trek, the idea of discovery. And, and, um, I don't know necessarily, I'm very, I'm very happy with the show, but this season's arc anyway, isn't, isn't so much about discovery. I think in the traditional Star Trek sense, they haven't been going to too many new worlds, you know, but there may be a different kind of discovery going on. And I, maybe in future seasons, they'll get, into that a little bit more, but I, I think it was a perfect name. I, you know, certainly Brian Fuller, uh, it, you know, I think we all knew him as a, as a fellow fan who made good, you know, and, uh, was able to contribute in, in Star Trek in a meaningful way through shows like Voyager. And, um, uh, you know, when I, when they started announcing that, uh, Eugene Roddenberry and Trevor Roth were, were being brought in, I, I, I appreciated that, uh, almost from a symbolic point of view, mm -hmm. that that sort of there would be a Roddenberry connection to this show, and and certainly I, I don't think there's very many people that are as important, you know, in terms of the 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 sort of the, the pantheon of Star Trek. I mean, I, I I believe that everyone from from the people who build the sets to uh, the musicians in the orchestra, every single person who contributed to Star Trek is valuable. But of course, there are there are people who really play a central role in making Star Trek what it is. And one of those is Nicholas Meyer. I, I don't know that we'd be talking about Star Trek Discovery if he didn't do what he did with Wrath of Khan from, from re reworking and making that script into what it was um, to directing it 
um, I think they were at a crossroads with Star Trek II, and it was either going to go one way or the other, and luckily it went the right way uh, with him at the helm and with Harve Bennett um, and with the contributions of the actors. So to have Nicholas Meyer uh, associated with Star Trek again in any way um, is, is, is like a dream for, for me as a fan and as a researcher. So I was very, very excited, um, and I was excited as a parent. Um, I, you know, I'm a, a little bit... Um, disappointed in the amount of sort of graphicness uh, of discovery on the one hand i understand it um and if it's necessary for the story i think it's always okay you know um but uh i i kind of wish i'm okay my kid is old enough i would be uh disappointed if my my our kid was a little younger mm-hmm. uh, because I don't know that I could show him Star Trek discoveries, but I, as a, as a parent, I was very happy that there would be a Star Trek on TV that I could watch every week with my son. Like I did with my father. Yeah. Like I think Nicholas Meyer, when he was announced, I think that was the one where it was like Brian Fuller that you thought, Oh, that's a perfect match. And then Nicholas Meyer to almost come out of the cold and sort of his Star Trek involvement had me kind of popping the champagne as it were and it's all it's still surreal when you see the credits there's nicholas meyer's name on the on the the sheet like obviously you've worked with nicholas meyer did you have much communication with him kind of in the build-up to star trek discovery and how he kind of ended up involved in this project well you know he's uh uh nicholas meyer has always been very very kind in giving us permissions to do either talks or he you know answers questions of us our communications have, have only ever been uh, over email, although uh, we've been in the same place at the same time. Sometimes we were in at Star Trek Missions New York. Um, my wife and I were giving a tribute talk to Leonard Nimoy, and we were also giving our presentation on Wrath of Khan, but unfortunately that was when Nicholas Meyer was on stage, so we, we never get a chance to... to, to I, I would always love to meet him and thank him for the help that he's given us uh, remotely, but you know, always I, I would never presume to ask him. I mean, I, as a fan, there's nothing I'd like more than to ask him, "Are you working on this con series that we keep hearing yeah. about?" Um, but I know I, I wouldn't get an answer anyway, so I try to keep uh, my questions limit. He's his time is valuable, and we try to limit it to questions about um, you know people's contributions or ideas, or you know, I occasionally send him a thank you or something like that, but. Um, you know, I, I do hope, I, I have no knowledge in, in, at all of this, but I, I certainly hope that the rumors that he's working on a con show are true. I would think it makes sense. There needs to be many weeks on CBSL Access that need to be filled by Star Trek in addition to Discovery. Um, I'm, I would imagine that that's certainly part of the plan, at least them thinking about what the plan is, uh, would include having either you know, mini series or one-off series or, you know, short-lived, you know, six episode, eight episode types of shows to, to, to carry us from, uh, you know, February until whenever season two starts or, or, you know, from the third to the, from the second to the third season. I mean, it's a, people are kind of sad that we have to wait six weeks for the next episode, but uh, imagine what our wait's going to be for season two. Absolutely. So, um, and have we waited 15 be, years, what, six weeks? So yeah. and a Christmas in so between. I feel, so I feel a lot. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, he has said he's working on a Star Trek project and uh, he did hint in a Trek movie interview um, that, you know, it possibly could be a TV show, may not be, could be, it could be a book, who knows? We don't know. So, um, I'm really hopeful about that, but I'm uh, even if he's not, I'm really grateful that he had a hand in, 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 in serving as a consulting producer on um, 
Star Trek Discovery. I, I hope that there's scripts uh, that would could eventually come from him for the show. I don't know if any of the this season scripts are. I know initially they there was talk that there were going to be episodes written by him. And, yeah, I think the second episode, sort of Battle yeah. of the Binary Star, I think that was originally linked to him, as, as I, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that some of that those plans fell apart as as uh, Brian Fuller left uh, the project, or, or maybe I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Meyer is really busy <laughs> writing his own scripts for, uh, you know, Khan. When you kind of look at sort of, let's say, the first nine episodes sort of from a kind of, sort of, you could class you almost as a Nick Meyer expert, what kind of little touches do you sort of associate thinking, oh, I can almost, him having the guiding hand there, that for me, I always think of in, um, was it, um, context is for kings i think was that i've lose track which episode where they discussed the the alice in wonderland book for me kind of yep. nick meyer calling upon literary subject books quotations that for me screamed nicholas meyer whereas a lot of people thought oh that's more brian fuller i was thinking it was nick meyer what kind of touches do you kind of notice and think that's definitely a nick meyer influence well i think uh you know especially with captain philippa i don't know you know what what kind of role was specifically played, but, uh, but Captain Giorgio, Philippa Giorgio, um, to me, she was just such a great character. Um, I, I, I have a hope, uh, for, um, discovery. I don't know. It's a, you know, my own little fan theory, but I, I hope that there's more from her that is possible. And, um, to me, she's just such a great character and her sense of humor, um, her, her kind of charm, to me, that's what Nicholas Meyer did best with uh, with the original uh, films that he worked on, was um, bringing a sense of charm back to Star Trek, uh, and, and in fact, amping that charm up. Um, having characters relate to each other in a very human way, but in, but inherent to who they were. Um, so we have Uhura, you know, seeing her actually working translational, humorously, but working translational. Uh, a function in Star Trek Six, or, or you know, the, the kind of material he wrote for Scotty in Star Trek Four. Obviously, any kind of interchange between Kirk and Spock, whether it's in Two or Six, um, just delightful kind of banter, and that p- these people genuinely liked each other, and that they enjoyed being with each other, and that and that was very much, I think, of the feeling of the Vulcan Hello mm-hmm. um, episode, and I and I kind of felt like. You know that that might have been some Nicholas Meyer influence there, particularly with that character of Giorgio. Um, but yes, I think anytime you have any any sort of um, intelligence in Star Trek, like some sort of a, um, uh, cleverness, um, you know, that always kind of goes back to the writers. I think, and uh, whether it was Nicholas Meyer or the other writers, the the, the genius of kind of bringing in literature to Star Trek again, uh, always welcome because that really wasn't in the J.J. Abrams universe. They, no. they, that that element of kind of the, the literature aspect of Star Trek, kind of its connection to classic literature, wasn't really there. It didn't, it didn't quite fit. Uh, so I'm glad to see it back. And, I'm, and I would think that Nicholas Meyer, certainly, if he didn't inspire it directly on this one, he inspired it through his previous um, you know, uses of Shakespeare or um, uh, Tale of Two Cities. 
Absolutely. And then obviously kind of in the build up to the show coming out, one of the big controversies was with kind of with Star Trek, everything's we've got this entire universe to play with. And they obviously decided to sort of nussle it in and sort of the, the prime universe 10 years before the original series. Um, and obviously there was some talk that it could be an anthology series, it could be this, it could be that. What was your thoughts and kind of your reaction to this is the sort of show, this is where it's going to be set, and this is where it's going to be based. Were you happy with that? A bit frustrated? Where did you kind of come to it? Well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a big fan of arc-based television, and the reason is because I think, um, I mean, it, it can be done well. Certainly there are examples of it done well. Um, and if anybody can do it well, I think it's a lot of the people that are working on Star Trek right now. But I think... The big problem with arc-based is that the arc often over um, – there's an overemphasis on the arc and not on character. So um, you could take a show like I think Flash or Arrow, and you can't necessarily recognize the characters season to season. It's, it's almost like whatever the narrative needs that season is how the characters are. And that's always a big danger I think with arc-based shows. Um, and so when I heard it was going to be arc-based, I was, of course, a little bit concerned. Um, but when you hear who's involved in it, I wasn't as concerned because I think Brian Fuller and, and, and Nicholas Meyer and, you know, Gretchen Berg and the people who work on, you know, Star Trek right now, um, uh, they can handle arc-based television, I think. But um, I did like the idea of an anthology-based show because I think that was something that would have been fresh and interesting every season being a different time period, it would have given uh, those of us who, who hunger for, you know, what happens post-nemesis, you know, um, an answer, a, a canon answer, you know. Um, and so I, I would have liked to have seen that. I think that's still possible. I, 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 I can't see why, uh, if Discovery continues to be as successful as it is, that there can't be one-off you know, we could get a Worf. Why not get a Worf television movie? Why not? I mean, it's unlimited, um, only by budget, I guess, yeah. uh, and and perhaps a concern of oversaturation. But if we're going to get fifteen or twenty episodes of of um, uh, you know Discovery each year, that's still a lot of weeks where you don't get anything, and uh, those weeks can be filled with um, different time periods and showing us different things and maybe bringing back some original actors to, to revisit characters from, uh, from the past. But I, I was a little bit concerned. I, I you know, I, I kind of want to see how this plays out. I have a, um, I, I can be knowing this. I want to say this. <laughs> so my, my fellow fans don't think I'm crazy, but, um, I, I can totally be wrong and I probably am wrong, but I have a, I, I just think maybe we're not in the prime universe yet. Interesting. Yeah, that seems that everyone seems to. I think that's one of the things that's kind of exciting about this sort of the way they've gone with the storytelling is that everyone has sort of theories and like, oh, is this set then? Is this the Section 31 ship? Many of these different ideas. And I think that's quite exciting in a Star Trek show, really, because I think with, say, maybe like the next generation Voyager and such like that, everything's all happily wrapped up after 40 minutes. You sort of know where you started, you know where you finished. And with this, it, it does keep you second guessing. And with episodes like the mid-season finale yesterday, you're like, right, where's this going to end in 45 minutes' time? And I find that quite quite exciting in a way with Star Trek. Sure, it makes Star Trek, and it certainly makes every uh, Sunday here and Monday uh, uh, throughout the world um, 
almost like an event, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, because you are wanting to know what happens. It it really, it really is like a chapter in a, in a book that you're enjoying and you want to read the next chapter, but you got to go to work, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, and you got to leave the book behind. And so I think that that's kind of a brilliant, um, brilliant. I mean, I think, you know, uh, wondering about Vok and whether Vok and Tyler are the same character or, you know, is, is Admiral Cornwall eventually going to become Lethe is, you know, is this the, is this an alternate universe? And then now they're going to jump to the prime universe, you know, um, and, uh, you know, those kinds of questions are fun, certainly fun to, to think about and make, make the week long wait, you know, a, a, a really exciting and in, and in a way we didn't really have you know we had facebook in a very rudimentary way you know when when um when enterprise was on you know uh towards the end and but we didn't have a lot of the social media and it certainly wasn't that big of a presence in our life and so the ability to interact with fellow fans and to and you know podcasts and everything mm-hmm. just that, that makes the it makes it more interesting to talk about because we week to week we're questioning what's going to happen. I think what's quite exciting as well with sort of the social media is kind of the creative talents involved as well, whether it's the Star Trek writers, Twitter account, uh, Nicholas Meyer's dog, um, and sort of the cast and the directors sharing photos. I, I think it's Ted Sullivan. I probably got it wrong. He's sharing a lot of behind the scenes photos after yes. an episode airs. And it's, it's so insightful. You go on Instagram and you discover like people like, um, what's her name? Uh, Kayla Detmar, uh, the lieutenant on the bridge with the, the shaved head. You see her having viewing parties. It, it's really quite exciting to see how everyone sort of is meeting Star Trek behind the scenes. And as fans, I think it's quite exciting what social media is doing for it. Obviously, there's people will complain as always, but I think the social media with, with Discovery has been, been really positive, and I think that's a huge success. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the bits of research we we we're doing a few years ago um and we've been sharing uh my wife and i write a couple columns for star trek.com each you know every month or so our columns appear and and we're working on one uh right now which looks at um is going to look at uh the results of this research which was um in a way even though they didn't have social media in the 60s um the actors and behind the scenes people at star trek really didn't and I think in a way we're breaking ground in the, in how interactive they were with fans. And so um, whether it was through fanzines like Spockanalia, uh, particularly Spockanalia, which was sort of the, one of the one of the first, really in a way the sort of the first um, important uh, fanzine, um, you know, uh, the, the actors would write back to fans and through that through that fanzine. The fanzine was around the 1960s Star Trek sets at Desilu. Um, and Roddenberry would write, uh, you know, um, DC Fontana would write, uh, they would answer questions and they would connect. And it, obviously it's much more immediate in today's world, but I, I'm really happy to see that because, um, and it's been, of course, taken to the next level with social media because it's so instantaneous and, 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 and you can have a conversation back and forth, um, I think that that's great that the actors and the behind the scenes uh, people working on Star Trek Discovery are continuing that tradition uh, because I think Roddenberry and, and the early sort of behind the scenes people realize the importance of fans to Star Trek 
and and that their their connection to the show was was a genuine and, and meaningful connection, and that they had something to contribute as fans through their ideas and their feedback. And uh, Roddenberry recognized that, and I and I'm really happy that the actors and the the writers and producers are, are also doing that in in the modern world with the modern technology we have. Yeah, I think we always think of, was it Billy Blackburn who had the treasure chest that ended up on the Blu-ray? That sort of, he was a supporting actor and there we saw him kind of filming behind the scenes and sort of the crowds and mixing with the extras. I always think that's almost sort of a companion to that, what they were doing in the 60s. Absolutely. It's, a, it's you know, it's, I mean, it's great. You can, as a fan, you can let the, let the actor know perhaps what you thought of their performance and, and, uh, you know, or, or what you think of their character. And, you know, I mean, I was most surprised when, when they first announced Paul Stamets, I was, you know, I've never, I, I liked engineering characters. Of course, everyone likes Scotty, you know, mm-hmm. but I've always been kind of a, you know, either, you know, a kind of a captain's person or, you know, uh, uh, that kind of, I, I've been gravitate towards those kinds of characters. But to me, um, you know, when they initially described Paul Stamets as, you know, something with mushrooms and you're like, oh, what, yeah. is this, you know, what is this about? And how is the engineer and he's got mushrooms? I don't know. You know Everyone's thinking a, that's definitely a Brian Fuller you know, pick. Yeah, fungus expert. It's like, okay, you know, um, but boy, what a great character. And, and really, uh, my, my favorite character, I think out of all the characters with the exception of, um, Michael Burnham really has acted the most courageously. And, and I think mm-hmm. taking even Michael out has acted with the, with, with, with the most conscience and with the most uh, concern and, and, and compassion. Um, even though he kind of starts off gruff, you know, yeah. gruff as a character, um, I think he's a really great, you know, character. So to be able to say to, to, to Anthony Rapp, wow, you know, here's a character who on paper initially looks like this kind of, you know, uh, fungus expert. How exciting can that be? And to have him be what I think is really a great standout character on the show. And to be able to tell them that I, I, I appreciate that as a fan. I certainly like to hear if someone likes what you're doing and, and, um, and, it, and it, I think it is really appreciated by fans that we get to have this kind of interactivity. Yeah, and I think Anthony Rapp sort of, he's, he summed up all along for me about why he's almost sort of living our dream in a way that I remember when he was cast and then there he was on Twitter saying, oh my God, I'm going to be in Star Trek. And I always remember, I think he was doing a play in London and he was posing with all seven season box sets, the next generation, all three of the original series, the movie box set. And he's like, and then for like months he was tweeting like, I've just watched Chain of Command. Patrick Stewart's incredible. And he's interacting with some of the older cast members. And you thought, I'm so jealous of you right now. Like it's, it must be such a surreal experience to be watching these episodes and thinking, wow, I'm going to be in it and interacting with the fans before anyone's even seen you in a clip. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, and and such a different, you know, such a different world. I, even even from you know, two thousand and nine, and 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 you know when when we had the last spate of a new sort of Star Trek and a new group of actors coming in, the world has changed really so, so drastically in terms of communication ability within the last just couple of years, and people's familiarity and comfortableness with social media that that it's just. It's, it's so much more prevalent and, and easy to access and to share um, with fellow fans and with with the behind the scenes people. I remember when they announced Zachary Quinto as an actor in Star Trek, we had wrote a letter. So that shows you <laughs> <laughs> the technology changing. And we just said, you know, just as fans, you know, you know, 
really how much we love Spock and, and we wish him luck and everything. And we got a letter back from him oh, wow. on his, yeah, on a stationery, which was really wonderful. And he had said that he got our letter the day he signed the contract to play Spock and, uh, that he saw it as a good omen and he wanted to thank us for sending us the, the letter and everything. And, you know, that, you know, that is such a great, and, you know, to me, that was a great interaction, and it, it, you know, it only makes you want to root for that actor, Absolutely. root for that character even more. You know, uh, when they can show that kind of kindness back to their fans, and the fans show the kindness to them, um, I think that that's great. What, what what did you think of the rest of sort of the main cast? Um, like um, Sonika, Martin Green, Doug Jones, uh, Shazad Latif, and uh, Mira Wiseman, and Jason Isaac. What's been sort of your reaction to their their roles and sort of their casting? I mean, I think when Jason Isaacs and uh, Michelle Yeoh were cast, I, I just couldn't believe it. Like uh, Jason Isaacs is a staple of British TV over here, and uh, to see him in one of my favorite franchises just was unbelievable. And I think he's he's been fantastic so far. And for Doug Jones, you know, I've, I've I'm so used to him in Del Toro movies. You know, he's this brilliant actor, and it was like wow, he's actually going to get to be sort of a star now. He's not just going to be some sort of background actor. He's going to be, you know, front and centre. Like, obviously, I hadn't seen um, Walking Dead, really, so Martin Green was sort of an unknown element to me, much the same with Latif and Wiseman. What was it like for you with the casting? You know, it, uh, it's the same. In many ways, these were... These were um some of the actors were known and some are unknown and that's pretty familiar. That's pretty, you know, same thing happened with enterprise. You know, everybody was kind of familiar maybe with Scott Bakula and, uh, but not necessarily with some of the other, um, actors or actresses on the show. And, um, you know, that I think has been a tradition. Star Trek has always had, I think some of the best actors, they aren't always recognized and they should be, uh, by the industry, I think. But, uh, you know, whether it's Patrick Stewart or, or Jerry Ryan or Kate Mulgrew or, you know, William Shatner, uh, obviously Leonard Nimoy, right? I mean, just the incredible actors that they have um, working on Star Trek. I, I you know, um, I think they're, that, that they're always good at casting, and I think that this show fits right into that. I, uh, I don't find anybody's performance to be anything but engaging, and in fact, they're, they're often um, heartbreaking. I mean, I think... Uh, Shazid Latif's performance this last episode Absolutely. of the season. I mean, that's an Emmy performance. I mean, that is just, I mean, that was an incredible, um, moving and, and it's meaningful too. I mean, especially as, as many countries are dealing with soldiers returning home, you know, uh, from, uh, the recent wars and, and, and really dealing with that, that issue and, and, and what that's like to, to experience torture or, or abuse or war, that kind of thing. And the way he performed that, um, both when he was with Cornwell performing the, the you know, the actual uh, attack that he was getting, you know, the, the, the PTSD, and then his performance afterwards, his vulnerability uh, when he was with Michael, I thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, 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 it's it's hard to say. I always wonder, like, who really is? I mean, in, in many ways, obviously, Michael Burnham is the central character mm-hmm. of the show, but they spend a lot of time with Lorca, and they spend a lot of time, as I think any good ensemble show does, with other characters. You know, uh, uh, Doug Jones was able to to have a, a really great amount of screen time in the last episode and uh, before this one, and I and I think that. Uh, 
it's really nice to be able to have that sort of showcase where you have a main character like Michael, uh, which I think uh, Shaniqua Martin-Green is just, you know, she fits right in as a heroic, you know, heroic but flawed. So it's I want I, I'm be interested to see where she winds up at the end of seven years or however many years, um, it, it, it because there's always that that question when you look at her, you know, like like I think it's unfair that she's been labeled what she's been labeled by the by Starfleet. Yeah, I I, I think in some ways nothing that she did really contributed to starting that war. I mean, she, yes, she defended herself against the torchbearer, but who wouldn't, right? Yeah. So, yes, she killed the, you know, she killed the torchbearer, uh, but she needed to defend herself, right? So that's not, that's not an issue. And her mutiny that she occurred really was, was kind of less, less severe than what Spock did, you know, in the menagerie. Yes. Uh, you know. It was a mutiny that all seemed to last all but one minute. Yeah, I mean, she was up and at him. So it wasn't like because of that, Captain Georgia was out of the picture and then therefore a series of events happened and therefore Michael is to blame. The, the mutiny lasted, like like, like you said, a minute. So, you know, I think she's sort of being blamed for starting the war by Starfleet, but it's unfair. So I don't know if the resolution is going to be Starfleet kind of realizing that. Mm-hmm. And and kind of giving her back her commission or whatever, but it's interesting to have a character who's really not wearing, you know, not fully wearing the uniform, so to speak, right? I mean, she she's she doesn't have a com badge, and she's a specialist, and she's lost her rank, and um, so that's that, that's a, a very interesting. And the way she plays that, um, and the range of emotion that we've seen, I think, just demonstrates what a great actress that uh, Sonequa Martin Green is. She's she she was very unlikable, I thought, in context for Kings, because she didn't like herself, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought, what a great performance, right? You see her, and she's kind of, she feels like she's irredeemable, and and her situation, there's no redemption for her, and and you sort of feel that way. And then little by little, she adds layers to that character again, and you go, wow, she's a great character and she's a great person and she you know and and you start to feel back that feeling you felt with her when you first met her in Vulcan Hello and I thought um that's great acting and with like Vulcan Hello and Battle of the Binary Stars that Star Trek pilots have a a somewhat mixed reputation at times where did you feel that sort of pilot when you watched those two hours on, on Netflix or CBS All Action what was your? How did you feel going into that? Because it's difficult sometimes for us as fans. We have lifetimes of pressure or thoughts and opinions, or it's hard not to compare. What was it like for you on that first night when you watched that double bill? Well, you know, I you know it was funny because I um, you know very very excited, of course, all day long, you know, uh, waiting and waiting and waiting for it to start, and uh, you know we got a bit of a delay here um, in the U.S. because of football. And uh, that was an interesting uh, experience because I did want to watch it actually on CBS the first hour. They, they showed it on network TV and I wanted to have that feeling of watching a Star Trek on network television uh, again because we really hadn't had that feeling since, you know, Voyager and Enterprise on, on uh, the UPN network. And so, um, you know, there was that, that, a great deal of anticipation and I – I immediately we immediately rewatched the episodes the very next day because um, there was so much to absorb, uh, both visually 
character-wise, dialogue-wise, and that's pretty unusual. I, I mean, I certainly watch. I mean, I, I probably watched every Star Trek episode, you know, eight times anyway, but never like immediately again. Uh, too often, and, and we've been doing that with every episode. Uh, we, we revisit it again uh, the very next day to kind of watch it and to kind of catch everything when you know when they're doing the, the Klingon subtitles. You miss some of the acting, you know, um, and so uh, to enjoy it, we've been we've been watching it again, and I. What I think's great is when I watch the first two episodes and then I rewatch them, I only appreciated it even more the second time. I loved it the first time, but the second time I was able to look for subtleties and 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 really catch more things. And, and I, I I was really impressed by the the two openings. I was not surprised by the wallop punch they gave you in context for kings mm-hmm. where it was a, it was in essence those first two episodes were kind of like a fake out you know <laughs> they were a prologue because you became so invested in those characters um especially Giorgio. i mean i just i thought she was just you know right up there with kirk and and and, and picard as just one of the great star trek captains and she established herself as that right away and uh and hopeful and brave and all the things that make a star trek captain and in a way all the things that Lorca doesn't appear to be or maybe, but isn't in, in, in his own unique way, those things, you know. Um, and so uh, I really loved that. And then it was it was almost like Context for Kings took a, uh, the third episode. You had to make a complete shift yeah. because it was like a different show. I almost expected, I remembered at the end of the, the second hour when um, the Discovery is being pulled away and I'm thinking, oh my God, here we go. We're finally going to introduce to the, the Discovery. No, it's the Europa. And it, it truly was that fake out that this is Discovery and it's two hours and before we're even getting to see it. So it's our third episode. I really liked that. And I think that's the joy of sort of this liberated television they've sort of got now where we think of Voyager, everything was wrapped up within the first two hours. It's almost like, here's your first two hours you ain't seen nothing yet which I, I thought was such a promising way to start a series and and confident as well and I thought it would be so easy after 15 years off the sea uh, off tv to go well, well we'll play it sort of safe we'll have the introduction to the cast and the crew but to go here's your first two hours and you're not going to see the discovery ship or two-thirds of the crew I thought that was quite a an exciting option you know it was great too because there was enough in there as as you said it was a lot that's new and exciting and there was that then but then there were things in there where you felt kind of familiar or or uh, um that there was a sort of a star trek vibe to it i thought the opening uh right after you're introduced to takumva and he makes a speech where you see uh michael and and uh and uh captain uh, georgia on this mission of a very star trek mission right to to help people without them even knowing you know, to help another species without them even knowing that you're helping them necessarily. And, um, and, and to show sort of the kindness of, of Starfleet and, and, and the Federation. And I thought that was a great sort of opening moment and a very sort of felt like what, that's what Star Trek was about. And, um, I also like that they kind of continued the tradition in Star Trek pilots. So in each of the Star Trek pilots, except the first, obviously the first 1960s show, um, but you know, in Next Generation, you had Doctor McCoy mm-hmm. as your bridge character in um, uh, in the Emissary uh, episode of uh, Deep Space Nine. You have Picard as your bridge to um, you know to Deep Space Nine, and then on Voyager, you have Quark as your bridge to 
you know, Voyager. So this this sort of tradition and an enterprise. You had Zephram Cochran. Mm-hmm. I mean, every every single Star Trek show has brought back a previous character from another incarnation as almost like a welcoming character to this new group of people, and kind of they send them on their way in, in many ways. Um, and that was true in this too. You have Sarek, right? Mm-hmm. Who, serves as that bridge character and that's what's something i'd love to hear your thoughts on like uh, james freen as sarek and then rain wilson as harry mudd obviously the, the original series is something you're so passionate about what did you think when they were first announced and then what did you think of their appearances and the, the episodes that we've seen them in so far well it's interesting as in some ways it's like sarek seems like the sarek we know you know <laughs> he's he's settled as a character, but that episode uh, Lethe <laughs> was brilliant because yeah, what I thought was fantastic about that was it deepened our, you know, we've always known that Spock and Sarek have had this animosity towards one another and that there is this strain and that that strain really stems from uh, uh, partially Spock's re- rejection of, you know, uh, the Vulcan Science Academy and rather going into Starfleet, right? And that's that's part of Star Trek 2009. It's part of the original Star Trek TV show, but never really fully exploring that. And the brilliance, I thought, of the script for Lethe was that it, 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 it fits so perfectly that you're like, now you know why Sarek had such profound disappointment in his son because he had made that choice, you know, to... He had a, a choice to make between his son and his, his sort of adopted foster daughter. And he cho- chooses his biological son over his foster daughter in terms of their future. Um, and then Spock says no to that, throwing away that. And Sarah kind of has to suffer with that that choice that he made. And I thought, what a brilliant way to add to that character and and – um, and to really deepen the original show in addition to Discovery. I thought that was really a great um, idea. And it made um, me kind of think as well. I remembered like, the talk when they made uh, Sarek um, in The Next Generation that Rick Berman was really pushing against even the mention of Spock and that it was this huge deal that they got to kind of even mention him at all and when Picard was overcome with all that emotion and then to see it sort of beautifully placed and subtle here it was hard not to think about how far Star Trek's come in sort of embracing its history and acknowledging the other series that we almost take for granted these days in sort of television and comics that it was just so beautifully put together that moment. And I think it's, it's almost one of the most overlooked episodes of the season so far. Yeah. I mean, I thought, and, and he was great in it. I mean, I thought he was a really uh, fantastic as Sarah. He, you know, I, I'm always um, interested. We, we've had a couple conversations with uh, Robin Curtis and uh, we were in, um, and we were invited, my wife and I, to go up to Vulcan, Canada uh, last summer and give a talk to the town there that uh, they have a big, they're sort of the official Canadian Star Trek town, obviously, Amazing. with the name Vulcan. And, uh, and um, Robin Curtis was there, and we spoke with her a lot there, and, uh, uh, you know, just through our interactions online with her. And one of the things that was, you know, she had spoken about was how difficult it was to go against every bit of training you have as an actor when you play a Vulcan, because you're tra- you're trained to emote, and and how do you what at, at how much can you emote as a Vulcan? There has to be some amount of emotion there, but but it has to be always under the surface. And 
it really takes, I think, a special kind of actor to play a Vulcan. And that's why I think Sinequa uh, Martin-Green, in a way, she's she's walking that line, right? She's got the Vulcan influence, and she's sort of socially awkward. You know, she she's kind of like Seven of Nine in that she doesn't really understand fully what it means to be a human being, but she is one, and because she really has more of a Vulcan. Uh, socialization, and so she's struggling with with this, and and characters like um, Ash and and Tilly are helping her, um, and Captain Giorgio helped her kind of discover her humanity in a way, and so, um, you know, I, I I really appreciate actors that can play Vulcans well, uh, and and I think James Fran is a great example of that. I mean, he's he. He's, he's doing a great, I think, service to Mark Leonard and the original performance of Sarek uh, that we had. I, You know, what I find curious, though, uh, and again, it kind of makes me lean towards that. I know that the show is going to be set in the Prime Universe and is, and is you know, because they've said it is. It is Prime mm-hmm. Universe. But I'm not sure we're there yet. And one of the reasons is I could see how Spock could hide Cybok, right? You... Mm-hmm. you you don't talk about a brother who was cast out of Vulcan. That's all kind of Vulcan business, you know what I mean? And 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 he can keep that private and not reveal that to Kirk. But Michael Burnham would have to be, you know, she's. It's not even an opinion. We know this. She's galaxy wide famous, yeah. right? No, we know that from context is for Kings, and we know that from follow up episodes that everyone on you know in the galaxy seems to know that Michael Burnham was a traitor and is being branded as the person who starts this war. And so, I mean, in our world today, if we had a person like that, we'd all know about her background, right? So everyone would know that she's a ward of Sarek. That's not a secret. And so. Kirk would know that Spock has a half half adopted sister or whatever you want to call her half sister. It it, it it could not have been hidden by Spock. It would not have been possible. And that's one of the reasons that I think this may be an alternative universe we've been seeing for nine episodes. And maybe now we're going to switch over to the prime universe because I don't know how that can possibly be reconciled unless they just kind of not want us to not think about that, which I think they're too careful of a writer's not to have thought about that concern. Absolutely. And what what did you think of when Harry Mudd, that it was sort of a bit of a, a left field turn when you logged onto Twitter one day and you saw Rain Wilson's been cast as Harry Mudd. You're like, huh. <laughs> what did you think of that casting and his appearances so far in, in um, Choose Your Pain and Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, some of the most kind of highly praised episodes of the series so far? What did you think about that in sort of the context of the original series and, and what we got? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in many ways, uh, when you look at the careers of Rain Wilson and you look at the careers of Roger Carmel, who played the roles originally, there is a, there is a kind of similarity there, you know, sort of this um, uh, character actor, comedic actor, but there's a bit of a, um, uh, a, uh, a kind of an edge to, their, to, the, to the comedy and the characters that they've played. And I thought that Rain Wilson was a perfect choice because of that. He was really a, um, I think, very much in line with, uh, you know, the spirit of who Roger Carmel was as an actor. And, you know, it's a different mud. It's younger, right? I mean, if we, if we presume we're in the, the prime universe and this is the mud we know, and he will grow up to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I mud and, and, uh, and uh, you know, um, uh, that sort of 
con man kind of, you know, the worst he is is sort of a con man uh, foil for Kirk. Um, this is an interesting beginning to him because he's obviously much edgier and much more violent and willing to kill people. Um, and we never got that from the mud initially. So he, you know, maybe Stella has a kind of an influence on him. Um, or the war has had an influence mm -hmm. on him, right? He's living through this war and he's a survivor and he's going to do what it takes to survive. And so we get to see him, you know, 10, 15 years later, um, on the original Star Trek. So, but I think there, there's a lot in there that's recognizable, that kind of, um, humor that, uh, the, the, the playing with the captain, you know, the not respecting authority, um, I think that that they're they're playing that really really well, and they've updated the character I think nicely for that for, for the show. And kind of looking through, we've also got nine episodes now. We're at the mid season point. What's been some of your favorite episodes, highlights, or moments of the the sort of first few months of Star Trek Discovery being back? Uh well, gosh, there's just so many. There's it's such. And that's a great, a great thing as well great. to see, isn't it? About in a first season, you know, it's 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 such a relief too. Well, the you know the the one moment I didn't the one moment I didn't like, and I could talk about the ones I really did like, and I I didn't like it because I mean because I think we were supposed to not like it was I and I'm still disturbed by it. What happened eventually to Giorgio where they ate her? Yeah. Um. I I don't. I, it was so dis disturbing because. Uh, I think, you know, we, I had read the David Mack book, which I think is, you know, sort of required reading, uh, for, uh, Discovery fans. And, um, you know, I got to know her even better in the book and I, you know, certainly loved the, the performance, uh, that Michelle Yeoh gave in the two episodes that she was in and then her, her cameo in the other third episode. And so uh, to find out that she was eaten is just, uh, oh, it's upsetting. Um, although I think in the last episode, uh, you know, you, you, you get a little bit of, uh, satisfaction in that you get her badge back, you know, yeah. her, her Delta shield back. And I think that that's sort of a restoration in a way of that. But, um, I thought, you know, I, I, I think that the, the moments that I've really been enjoying are, um, seeing certain performances. I think, I think Kenneth Mitchell as, uh, Cole is just really great. I think mm -hmm. he's a, and in fact, I loved that they had, to, they spoke English this episode yeah. because, um, and what a brilliant way to do it. You know, just th this last episode was smart in so many ways. Uh, very clever. The jumping 133 times and it just, it's just great stuff. And the, to keep that communicator open and allow us to hear it in English it really gave us a chance to focus on the acting, you know, um, and I thought that that was great because we got to see how really good an actor all these, the, the, all, Mary Chifo, all the all the Klingons are, and to act in, under that makeup. Um, I really liked uh, when, I, I didn't like it, but I, I, lo I loved the pain of um, when Connor dies in uh, Battle of the Binary Stars. I thought, uh, you know, what a fake out that was, right? Because you had the actor, uh, Sam Vartham, Varthamios, I think is how you say his mm -hmm. name, he he was, um, you know, he was doing press and everything else, right? I mean, you you just presumed he was going to port over like with Saru to the Discovery, and then to have him die the way that he did, uh, and the acting that was there was just, I thought, a really great moment. And it, in many ways, it was the first moment where you go, "Ooh, this show is going to surprise me." You know, there's going to be a lot of surprises here. Um, 
I really enjoyed uh, the um, the last episode. I thought that that was very very clever, um, and how they kind of I think in many ways it was where the characters acted the most like we would think Starfleet would act. It wasn't really so much about the war, even though it was. It was about a mission, and there was a mission to complete, and they all kind of contributed based on their talents. Um, I really like and Choose Your Pain when Saru uses his, what you could conceive of as a weakness, right? His fear and his knowledge of what it means to be a prey to rescue his captain, right? He's sort of analyzing the ships and how predators attack a prey. And I thought that was great because that just shows you that he has a lot more to him as a character and really has a, a great deal to contribute. And, and I think anything with Paul Stamets where he is being selfless, um, like when he you know, gives himself the tardigrade DNA and, and because he won't harm that creature anymore, you know, um, I thought that that was just really what Star Trek's all about, getting you to think about how we treat one another and how we treat the world. And I thought that that was really, those are some of my favorite moments of the show. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things, like, I think I, what really kind of struck home for me was sort of in context for King, some of the, um, the criticisms of the show was that this crew, you know, seems so unhappy. They don't seem, you know, like the scientists that we know, even though this is wartime, like this is going to be quite a difficult crew to like. And I think, when I was watching Into the Forest, I go and then Lorca's making that speech on the ship that we've all seen a captain do in Star Trek before. And it really, you know, you're seeing where this crew have all kind of come together and they've overcome a lot of their difficulties with each other, their their mission, and coming together to achieve a goal. And I thought, that's it. People have said this isn't Star Trek at points, but this is such pure Star Trek right here. And I thought that was such a great moment. We just got that moment with the crew coming together and I thought, yeah. I'm so sold on this show. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny. There's sort of two two points there. One is, um, I absolutely agree. I thought Context for King, when I was watching it, I said to myself, well, I, you know, I don't like anyone. I mean, initially. Um, you know, uh, the, I mean, the very first person you really meet from the Discovery is uh, Commander Landry. And she's just, you know, I mean, she's talking to prisoners, of course, but she's not, she was not presented in a very likable way, right? Mm -hmm. And they're marching through the ship and it's kind of, you got guards all around and, you know, people in, with black badges on and, you know, uh, um, and you're just wondering what's going on and the ship just, it seemed like you were in this, you really did sort of feel like you were in Alice in Wonderland, like in this kind of like strange environment that wasn't recognizable as a Federation ship. Um, but I, you know, I, what, what I'm, I, I think many uh, of my experiences in terms of coming to grips with the show is seeing it as a, it's a different entity, right? It's, it's not Star Trek. So in, in, it's not, I, I don't mean to say it's not Star Trek. I mean to say it's not Star Trek in the style we're used to, in the presentation we're used to. In other words, I think it's sort of like you have to take the 15 episodes we're getting this season and that's an episode. Like that, like that's how I'm thinking about it. So we are only, I've only seen if, if this was, if we could make the 15 episodes an episode, I'm at a half an hour point in yes. a regular Star Trek episode, right? Where I'm, I'm at halfway or a little past halfway and we're nowhere near the resolution of the story. And so that's a very different kind of shift from other Star Trek. So, I mean, if you take a look at 
the menagerie, right? You see, you have, you have Spock, and Spock commits an act of mutiny. Um, he uses a Vulcan neck pinch, just like uh, Michael Burnham does. Um, he commandeers a ship, just like Michael does for at least to a minute. She does, but he commandeers it for a much longer period of time. Um, he brings the, the a ship to um, you know what is known to be a planet with a death sentence for whoever goes there, um, and. Uh, you know, he goes against the wishes of not only one captain, but two captains, right? He goes against what Pike is telling him not to do it, and he does it, and Kirk is trying to get him to stop doing it, and he won't do it. And if if we stretched that episode out across 15 episodes instead of two, it would have been in a completely different um, kind of an experience, I think, because we would only be at the point where maybe Spock's trial is starting, you mm -hmm. know? Um, on board the ship and we don't know what's going on and I think it's also difficult because it's been 12 years since we we don't know what's going to happen to characters in a way right I mean all, all we've had is the J.J. Abrams films where after two hours you know what happened to the characters we're done the story is completed and um, you know before that it was Enterprise and you you know at the end you know in 2005 you knew what what the fate of all the characters were. And so we're in that phase where we don't know these characters really yet. Um, and, and I think I, I don't want to rush it, right? Because, you know, if we look at the first season of Next Generation, I didn't really know things about Picard or Riker or Troy, like I would eventually know these characters. I mean, it takes time in any show to get to know characters and to connect with them. And I, and I also think the way they're doing this it's just one big giant episode. It's one big story. And so I'm going to let them tell the story. And I'm fully confident that the end resolution is going to be very Star Trek-ish. Um, and I'm going to feel comfortable with it, whether it's because we're going to go to the prime universe and we're going to see them at the end of the season in the yellow, red, and blue shirts uh, because they're stuck in that prime universe. Um, or, or we are already in the prime universe and um, we're going to follow these characters on, on, a, on a, uh, another adventure next season. That's not the war. Um, I think I, I think we have to let them tell their story. And it's just we're in the middle of an episode right now is how I'm looking at it. Absolutely. And, it, and it's been a great episode so far. I mean, I've, even for me, I've only had sort of some minor quibbles. I almost feel something that they're underdoing is this when they talk in context is for Kings. We see this on board the ship. We have 300 different scientific experiments going on at one time. I'd love to maybe see a little bit more of that come into play, find out some of those experiments, find out what maybe what is going on with some of these black kind of com badges and so on. But as you say, we're halfway. There's There's so much to play with, I think. Lorca and his previous experience on that ship that he sent to its doom I think that's going to play an interesting role down the line and I think there's just so many little things they played with even the Vulcans these what I can't remember the name of it logic extremists I think that's going to be something we're going to see some more of as well so there's certainly little things that have been peppered around that I'm quite curious to see where that'll go in sort of maybe the second half of the season and beyond and I think the bridge crew I'm looking forward to learning more a bit about them we've got kind of some regular faces as well and I'm looking forward to seeing these characters stories as well I think that'll be exciting to see that expanded upon as well Absolutely. I think, you know, it's for what, what we think about what we have gone through in only nine episodes, it has been quite a ride, you know, um, and uh, and I think much more has happened, obviously, to characters and 
character development within these first nine episodes than really the first nine episodes of any previous Star Trek show because of the episodic nature of those shows. And so it's, it, it, you know, the, the, I, I want to know more about the people that are on the bridge. I, they're, they're, I want to see them on Star Trek missions. You know, I want mm-hmm. to see them boldly going where no one has gone before. Right now, the show has been kind of insular, which I think is another thing that leads me to this whole, like, is this the prime universe yet? Because we keep hearing about Andorians, but not seeing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, the only species we've seen outside of the Pavins have been Vulcans, humans, and Klingons, mm-hmm. and then, you know, Saru, Saru as a representative of his people. And you're not really seeing any, t- you know, too many other races except as kind of background characters. Mm-hmm. And I think it's and, one of these ones that I think, I, I share the same thing as well. I think that they've almost done it that sort of with the first kind of few episodes, all the equipment they've had to design, all the ships and the build, there's not much really kind of kicking around in the budget, even though what we're getting is a really high quality product. And I think probably more in that second half of the season, I almost think a lot of these shows are slightly bottle shows. You know, they're all on existing sets that they spent a lot of money designing. We've only had really that one away mission. I think almost kind of quite nicely, I think the Klingon War is kind of quite well wrapped up almost to this stage. I expect that to sort of wrap up quite quickly now. And I think we'll start to see them exploring those strange new worlds and seeking out those new civilizations because the money is going to be there as well to maybe do that and go on location in Canada and places like that. That's that's what I'm potentially thinking might happen. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, my hope is like, I'd love to have the show go five, six, seven years, you know, however long uh, they can go. And, um, so there's a lot of stories to tell, you know, and, and one of the nice things with it being on uh, the streaming services is, you know, they're not as constrained with the time format. So, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at uh, sitcoms in the U.S. We were watching a, a sitcom the other day uh, that, that's on a major network, and it was 18 minutes and 22 seconds, and that was it. That was a sitcom. And so there's uh, there not a lot of story you can tell in 18, I mean, 18 minutes and 22 seconds is a YouTube video. It's not a sitcom. <laughs> and, you know, that coming from I'm growing up in a world where sitcoms were 27 minutes long. You know, there was an extra 10 minutes a show. And, you know, we watched the original Star Trek. They went 50 minutes, 51 minutes. <laughs> and, of course, as time goes, you get less and less show. What One of the things I appreciate with uh, Discovery is there's been episodes that skirt up close to, you know, what you were seeing on TV and, you know, some dramas today in the U in the U S anyway, run 38 minutes. And with, uh, with, uh, discovery, we've been, there's been episodes that are pushing 45, 46 minutes. And it's almost like we're back 15 years ago, 12, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, you're getting more story. I think and, there was an episode as well that was like 39 minutes and one that was 50. And I, when I saw the 39 minutes, one episode, when it was booting, I was like, Oh, five minutes less. But I kind of was like, I'm happy with that, that we've all heard the story as well. The episode came up short, so we kind of put in a few scenes here and there to build it up. And I'm kind of like that confidence of going, this is what the episode is. This is our best product. We don't really need to add anything to it. Off it goes. If it needed to be 50 minutes, it would be 50 minutes. And I find that a a confidence sign that the people are trusted and they don't just have to fill ads in anymore. It's all about what's the best product and putting out there. Right, and, 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 and we're, we're learning. I mean, there are these little scenes uh, 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 
that we're learning about our edits, you know, that the, there's a scene with Takumva and a Batleth on fire that was edited out or a, a little bit of um, the conversation between Laurel and, and Admiral Cornwell was, was edited. And so they're, they're make they're still making these, these, these important editing decisions and saying, this isn't necessary for the story. So they're not a, a sort of abusing that privilege either, where they're just going, let's just put everything in that we filmed, you know, because sometimes uh, even a good scene may, you know, need to be edited out. I, one of my favorite examples of that is um, in the original screenplay to Wrath of Khan, there was a, um, there was a saber fight. There was a face-to-face meeting between Kirk and Khan. And it happens on the, you know, in the Genesis cave and Khan is beam, Khan, Khan, before he beams up the, the, the Genesis torpedo, he beams himself down. And basically the scene plays out kind of similar, except the very end to what happens in Star Trek three. So the, the scene between Kruge and Kirk, where Kirk kind of taunts Kruge, like, Hey, you got to bring me up there. And Kruge is like, no, I'm coming down. That was in the, the conscript, really. And Khan comes down and they fight with old fashioned sabers. You know, they, the Khan chooses a weapon and they fight with these old fashioned uh, sabers and Kirk loses. And, um, and, and, but Khan, so Khan strands him there and, as his punishment and leaves. So basically you wind up in the same exact place you wind up in the movie now, but without an unnecessary fight scene, which would, you know, you didn't need it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fact, it adds so much charm to the film that they never really do meet face. They're never in the same room together. And that just adds to the kind of submarine World War Two you know, fight uh, uh, a feeling of the film where they're kind of only dealing with each other remotely. Um, and we would have never got the great con yell, right? Yeah. So the, 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 the con scream became the emotional punch of that scene. And that was written as a, as a, because they had edited out the fight, they needed a, a, a kind of a resolution or a, um, a big moment there. And that's where the con screen comes in. So, Editing is always really, you know, such an important thing for the writer and also for them while they while they film. Um, Star Trek II also had a much longer fight scene between Kirk and his son. In fact, you do see in the Khan movie poster, you see an image of Kirk's son with his knife over Kirk. And he's looking up and who he's looking at is his mother who comes in. Carol comes in at that point. He's looking at his mother. That wasn't a staged photograph just to have put it on the poster, that was actually a moment from the film where they had filmed the longer fight scene that Kirk loses also. He loses to his son. And um, they really changed that fight scene and edited it down to just a couple of like a punch out of the hand of the knife and just they, they kind of like look at each other. And that was wise too because um, you didn't need to have Kirk being defeated a thousand times in the film before he starts winning. And, and it was kind of meant to show his age and all of that. And it just, I think it would have been a little bit too much and it would have extended the film in a, in a way that was unnecessary. So I, I'm really happy that we're learning that there are deleted scenes in a way. One, because we can get to watch them maybe on Blu-ray releases. Oh yeah, surely Blu-ray. Because if everyone's got the streaming service, you've got to give someone an incentive to, to get the Blu-ray. And one thing I've loved about the Blu-rays, I've been the extensive behind-the-scenes documentary as a retrospective. So I'm really hoping when Discovery comes to Blu-ray, we get the same quality that we've we've been getting on all the Blu-rays now. 
Yeah, I mean, I just love I love when they bring on people like you know Larry Nemesek or, or um, uh, um, you know what they did with the Star Trek Blu-ray films where they brought in. Yeah, you know, they had like Nicholas Meyer and and, uh, and 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 others comment on the film together. They they paired people together that I thought were interesting combinations of people to kind of comment on on the films. Uh, that was great. You had Iris Stephen Bear, I think, even commented yeah, right, on yeah. one of the films. Um, so, I, you know, those kinds of bonus features, I love them because they give us a chance to really you know, celebrate what the contributions are. We just finished watching all, finally, all of the Beyond, Star Trek Beyond, which we thought was a really um, uh, underrated, uh, fantastic uh, Star Trek film. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, uh, I'm so disappointed it didn't kind of capture the audience uh, box office-wise that I think it deserved, um, because everything about it was just, I thought, Star Trek to its core, um, and, um, and, and what uh, tribute to like, Leonard Nimoy oh. as well. I thought it was just, I thought going into that movie, they weren't going to acknowledge it. So it was a surprise on opening night when it, it became such a cornerstone and, and, and really poignantly, poignantly done through the movie. And I, I thought, yeah, Star Trek Beyond, I, I'm, I'm going to go see it next year live at the, the Albert Hall here in London. They're bringing, bringing it here with a live audience and uh, the live score. So um, I've, I've been lucky to see the two previous J.J. Abrams movies in this 20,000-seater royal venue with the live orchestra. And, you know, people can criticise some of the movies rightly at points or, you know, they've, they've got their huge audience. But when you saw things like when Leonard Nimoy appeared and you see this live audience applauding along or when in Star Trek Into Darkness when the Enterprise drops and comes out and that raw audience reaction, the score swelling, I'm really excited to see Star Trek Beyond get that experience with an, a live audience of live score. I'm, I'm counting the days till next year already. Oh, I, I, I'm so envious because I really, I, um, you know, I love, uh, you know, Wrath of Khan. I love uh, Star Trek and I love Star Trek Undiscovered Country, but, um, in many ways I, you know, I place, uh, uh, Star Trek beyond, not that I'm, I'm not a, a ranker too much, you know, this is better than this kind of thing, but I, it's definitely one of my top, you know, four, three favorite films for sure. And, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the heart and the, the soul of that film. I thought Jayla was a fantastic character. Um, you know, to, to it was also heartbreaking because of Anton Yelchin. And, and I don't know if it was by design. I'm pretty sure it was when, when they raised their glass at yeah. the end of the film to sort of absent friends or the friends who aren't with them. And that camera lands on Anton Yelchin. That is just a heartbreaking moment. And I thought a beautiful way to acknowledge um you know the loss of just somebody way too young and um so uh uh you know beyond i thought was really really a great film i hope they get a fourth film um and i'm actually our son is really hopeful that they do a crossover he wants to see uh since obviously we can't do leonard nimoy with with michael can't you know Mm -hmm. that, that, that opportunity is gone unless they use some kind of special effects technology um, it, he wants to see a crossover between the Kelvin universe and and, uh, and this universe. I'd love uh, to see that. <laughs> Whether CBS and uh, Paramount agree to something like that, that's always it's always when you've got to tell a kid like that's a brilliant idea. But son, let me tell you about production problems and stuff. But there, there's the problem: is the ownership rights. That's the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> 
thank you so much for joining me today, John. It's been such a pleasure. I've, I've listened to you on other podcasts before, and I've always been enjoyed listening to you as a listener, and I feel like the same again tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you on the internet or discover about your talks and read your writing, I know our very own Tristan Riddell uh, from Chicago himself. He had mentioned he'd been to one of your talks, and it was fantastic. And I know Mike Schindler, he's here on the Nerd Party Network as well. He's spoken very highly of your talks. Where can people kind of see these amazing events and, and find out more about the great work you, you do? Well, uh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me, first of all, uh, and asking my opinions on, on this. It's, a, it's really a privilege to talk to fellow fans and to share uh, this all again with fellow fans. It's, uh, you know, um, you know, Star Trek's a big part of our my whole family's uh, life, as it is with, I think, a lot of us. And, and uh, to be able to connect with fans in any way, uh, fellow fans, is always a big thrill. Um, uh, I, I'd love to talk with anybody uh, and connect with anybody. A great way to get in touch with me is just through Twitter. Um, if you just search for Tenuto Family, run run it all together. It's a T-E-N-U-T-O Family together. That's kind of my wife and my account. Um, and uh, and since we tend to write together and present together, we you know we we uh, use that single account like that. So that's a great way to, to get in touch with us. Um, uh, in terms of talks, our talks are always free, um, and uh, and and really the goal of them is to share um, you know rare pictures and rare information with fellow fans. We do a lot of them locally here uh, in Illinois at local libraries. So if somebody wants to uh, you know f- f- you know connect with us on Twitter, I can give you a list anytime we're we're doing a talk. Um, but we also do uh, talks for creation conventions. Um, uh, and uh, both here locally, and we've done them in Las Vegas and Boston and wherever they're at. So people can watch for them at local, uh, at their local or the big official Star Trek conventions. We like to, you know, we present there. We we did nine talks a couple years ago at one wow. of the. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. Traded uh, in gambling for doing some Star Trek talks. Well, that's a, a great self restraint in Vegas. Yeah, it was. You know, it was a good way not to have to worry about spending money because we were so busy. But it was. Uh, that was great. We, one of them was um, uh, incredible privilege. Uh, uh, myself, Larry Nemesek, and Adam Malin uh, gave the kind of a, a f- sort of official uh, Leonard Nimoy tribute um, at the Las Vegas convention, and that was for five thousand people. I mean, that was the most amazing emotional um, experience that I've ever had and, and presenting, I mean, just to the crowd and everybody there just to, to be sad together and, and to appreciate, uh, Leonard together and, and to love, you know, and to express the love that we have for Star Trek and Leonard together. That was an amazing uh, experience. So, and we, you know, we, we, um, we, we've got some invitations out there right now. We might be doing something with the Star Trek tour or people, things like that. So we do do, um, talks all over the place. So, uh, if anybody wants to shoot us a, an email or a message through Twitter or whatever, we're always happy to share that. We love um, really getting this information to fans and 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 um, and talking with fellow fans and learning from them. Some of our, our our best resources have come from fans who have their own archives and databases and images and, and things like that. And uh, so um, we just love sharing that and appreciate any chance we can to do that. And uh, last but not least, we do write for Star Trek.com. So if um, anybody wants to check out our, our, we have a series of articles there. There's a whole um, six, I think five or six episode um, 
um, look at uh, the making of uh, Space Seed that's on there. That's a really nice in-depth look. We did a whole bunch of articles about newspapers and Star Trek. And um, last but not least, we're going to be on a Netflix TV show coming up in um, either December or January called uh, The Toys That Made Us. And uh, we love, you know, Star Trek collecting is a big thing for us. And and I love looking at the history of that. And some of our talks are about um, the history of Star Trek collectibles and their role in Star Trek production history and all of that. And so um, that's a new show that's coming out. And one of the episodes is going to be all about Star Trek toys. And uh, they're doing Star Wars toys and Transformers and Barbies. And they're looking at the toys that have been important culturally around the world. And uh, it should be a great show, so we're looking forward to that too. Absolutely, we'll, we'll be happy. To sh- we'll put a lot of these links in our show notes, and we'll be uh, we'll be putting um, that up on our Twitter and Facebook pages as well. When when you've got any of your tours and shows coming up, we're we're happy to to share that with anyone. So thanks again, John, for joining me. It's been an absolute honor, and I hope uh, you continue to go boldly in this uh, great many talks you do. You too, and thank you. Thanks for inviting us, and live long and prosper, everyone. Join the revolution. Join the Nerd Party. Welcome to Nerd Party.